Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I feel at home in Renana. It's a suburb, outside of Tel Aviv, filled with mostly English speakers, also called Anglos in Israel. But it's not the language that makes me feel at home. It's something more. It's the idea that so many of these English speakers left Johannesburg, London, and even Brooklyn to build a life in Israel. There's a strange struggle, a journey, a eureka moment sitting in the minds of each English-speaking resident of Renana. I want to hear their stories. So I had to find an exceptional resident of Renana who is a Lamed Vav. Easy. Enter Joseph Gittler, founder of Leket. This is my conversation with Renana resident Joseph Gittler. We are here with Joseph Gittler, the founder and chairman of Leket, one of Israel's leading food distribution and collection charities. Thank you so much for sitting with us. Thank you for this invitation. I'm excited to be here. Before we get into the incredible work of the organization, tell me a little bit about you and your journey to Eretz Israel. I'm 46 years old. I grew up in Washington Heights, New York, till the age of 15. Then we made our way over to Teaneck, New Jersey. That was uh, the real Aliyah. Yeah, that's the first Aliyah. We'll call it that. Favorite restaurant in Teaneck? Ooh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I like Mocha Blue. You're my kind of guy. Good answer. Good place. I like it a lot. Riverdale, New York, after I got married. So as you can tell from that little triangle, I had to move it very far away in order to just get out of the pull of New York and New Jersey. I come from a very typical modern Orthodox background. I went to a school called Breuer's, Mariah School of Englewood, Yeshiva University, why am I here today? How did I get here today? We were brought up that Zionism was important. Most people, it's kind of interesting if you think about it. How many things did I listen to that my parents told me? Not many. This one, which took me 5,000 plus miles away from them, I listened to. So what does that say about me and my parents? Nothing. <laughs> my father, unfortunately, isn't with us anymore, but my mother lives in Teaneck, but she does spend a fair amount of time here. When I told them I was making Ali, that was actually the hardest part. The hardest and today the most difficult, the only regret if I have any about making Aliyah, is leaving the parents behind. It's been wonderful. I'm very privileged to live here. But that's the one difficulty I think anyone you'd interview who's made Aliyah would, would say. My Aliyah story is, is, is very positive. The difficult part of Aliyah is that two weeks after we made Aliyah, the second intifada started. That's the hard part wow. of our Aliyah. Everything else was grand. How do you think that kind of shaped your perception of living here? Things changed dramatically. Two weeks after we met Aliyah, suddenly there was a security guard in front of our daughter's gun. That didn't exist. And that stayed. Meaning, here we are 21 years later, that security guard's in front of the school, security guard's in front, that's, that's permanent. Maybe not permanent permanent, but it's, that's here. That was reality for years. Multiple wars, intifada, missiles, terror attacks, you know, retaliation by 
I don't think I'm actually that different in my worldview. That's just me. But that worldview does get challenged often in this country, especially, you know, if you tend to be, let's say, more in the center. <laughs> that worldview gets challenged. What was it like to watch 9-11 from Israel? Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. So first of all, let me tell you, I was at I was at my desk. And every once in a while, I guess I'd go on the website of the New York Times and I saw plane crashes into the World Trade Center. And I really, I don't think I knew the word hacking then. I'm not sure if the word hacking existed, but I felt like, oh, it's, I don't know, is it April? Like, no one understood right at the beginning, within those first 10 minutes. And then the second plane hits. And of course, you know, I say, I'm out of here. I'm going home. Because you couldn't reach anyone. You couldn't call. So you couldn't know. even call your family because all no, the lines the, were the down. No, the lines were down. Nothing was working. You know, in the end, of, I did have one guy I went to shul with in Riverdale who was killed and a guy from my class in high school wow. who were killed. You know, what I do remember is, is a close friend of mine who was working in Tel Aviv. And of course, because of that special connection between Israel and the United States, and there weren't so many tall buildings, but he worked in a law firm in Azrieli Center, and they evacuated all the buildings. Because they, they figured it was probably connected to the Middle East. And if it starts in New York, the next spot could be Tel Aviv. It was just such a shocking thing. It was, everyone felt like it was being a World War III. Walk me through that moment when you... So you're in high tech before high tech is high tech, right? And I'm sure it's very competitive financially. I'm sure it's, you know, gratifying, making all these deals, doing all these sales. You know, take me through that moment when you realize that this is nice. But this is not why God, Hashem, guy upstairs put me on this earth. I don't know if I had a eureka moment, but I think it's a few things that came together. So one was the Intifada, September 11th, its impact on the Israeli economy, tourism, people stopped coming. A lot of kind of sounds like today, a lot of people suffering to make um, ends meet. That's on the one hand. I think for me also, you know, as a child of the 1980s, we used to hear a lot about starvation in Ethiopia. I grew up with parents who would say, finish your plates. They're starving kids in Ethiopia. And then I was a fresh kid. I would say, you know, what does a starving kid in Ethiopia have to do with me finishing my plate? It actually is a disconnect. If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense, right? But really, if you think deeper about it, what it really should be is because we bought too much, right? You start going backwards because the farmer produced too much and sold too much because your parents buy too much. And then you don't it. Because it was on sale and you right. didn't need it. So we need to take all that back 10 different steps so that, okay, Mr. Farmer, you can grow too much, but it better go in the direction of the people who need it. That's the problem we need to solve. And really for me, if I say if there's one eureka moment, one was all of us talk about what are they doing with all that extra food at that wedding, at that bar or bat mitzvah, in the hotel. Everyone talked. No one did. Just going time and time again. Again, during a time of intifada, where there's so many people struggling and yet here you are at this fancy Not, not only with the attacks, but the, the after effects Economics. of everything. Economics. Socially, economically. Yeah, think about uh, people working in hotels. Yeah. What brought it all together was Israel's Bituach Lumi National Insurance Institute, who in late 2002 came out with their first ever poverty report. And that report just had really damning numbers. 20% of Israelis living under the poverty line. And for me, the hardest part, I was very naive, was that you could have a couple both working and still living below the poverty line. And I just like, how could that be? In the Jewish state. In the Jewish state, Jews and non-Jews alike. Now, why I say I was naive is because 
It's not different in America. It's not different in France. It's not different in England. Or That is actually the major economic issue of our time, which is wages that don't keep up with the cost of living. And it's only gotten worse since I started Leket. And it continues to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's getting worse in Israel again. It's gotten worse because the country's gotten richer. I mean, there's right. this huge flow of money into the country, which raises salaries and the cost of living and housing, especially in one part of the economy. And the other part of the economy, even though the minimum wage has gone up here by tens of percent since I made Aliyah, way more than it has, let's say, in the U.S., where there's this whole fight for the $15 wage. But even though it's gone up, the cost of living has gone up way higher. And now everyone's getting worried about inflation. I'm, I'm very nervous all the time here. Very nervous. Even though the unemployment here is very low, and that's good for wages, it pushes wages up. But unemployment today is almost double what it was before COVID. Wow. So it's still low, five something plus percent, which is reasonable, but not low enough that it just forces employers to pay more money. That makes me crazy that you work full time and you need to go to a soup kitchen, get food from a, a food pantry. I, I, I can't live with that. Right. And so that was their Eureka moment. But tell me like the Meshuggah moment, right? Where you say, I'm going to get in my car <laughs> and go not beg for food, but make an ask for food on behalf of faceless people who you assume or you know, based on this data, are hungry. So work me through kind of that first time when you went to wherever you went to, got the food, and then tried to give it to the people. Well, first of all, I did a lot of research before I started. I just wanted to make sure for myself that this didn't exist in Israel. And the only reason really we're sitting here today is because I went to visit dozens of charities and so many of them, and I wasn't even thinking about collecting. I just wanted to see what was up. Right. Was there something missing? So many of them mentioned to me how they spend so much of their time raising money to buy food. And here you are, a battered women's shelter where your real role is to rehabilitate, give hope. And yet, Instead of the staff having time for that, they're spending so much time always fundraising. I mean, every organization has that problem, but here was maybe an area where we could help solve that issue by just getting food. And I just, when these charities heard the idea, they were all for it. I just started calling caterers. I think what kept me without being all tense, because my Hebrew is pretty subpar in those days, it's better today, was, you know, in the back of my head, and this I think is always, if you're, because fundraising and all this, everyone always says, oh, it's so bad. It's so Keep in the back of your head always... You're not doing it for yourself. Now, I was very lucky in that almost every caterer I called in the bidding said, we've been waiting for this for years. Can you come today? Wow. Very little rejection. And so what gives you a, a, you know, a better kick in the butt than everyone saying yes to your idea? What year was this? This is the beginning of 2003. Wow. And I made a decision right in the beginning. I don't even know if it was a decision. It's just the way it happened is I'm going to start this on my own, meaning I'm not going to start recruiting volunteers before I even see if it makes any sense. Plus, I didn't have any grand plans okay there were no grand plans 18 years later 100 plus staff members feeding hundreds of thousands of people a week none of this it was just okay there's all this wasted food at events i've spoken to lots of other charities no one else seems to be dealing with it it's logistically complicated that may be why no one wants to deal with it my biggest problem in the beginning is so many people said yes i couldn't go everywhere on my own so i just said i'll, I'll get back to you soon so i took my wife's car that was very smart and I went and I started buying all different types of containers just to see what might work. Okay, lots of spills, lots of mishaps. You remember that Seinfeld episode where he can't get the smell out of his car? That was my car. Fish juice that gets into, you know, carpeting in the car. I had one rule, which was you need to answer your phone. Okay, the caterer. 
or whoever is the contact person, just so I know, is it worth coming out? And I would go out with my containers, call the caterers before I went out. Is there anything? I remember even one of the first events I ever went to, no one was answering, so I went to sleep. And then at 2 a.m., get a call. Yossi, hey, Fuata. Yossi, where are you? They don't call me Yossi. Even though I tell them in this country, call me Joseph or Yosef or even Joe. They could care less what I have to say. <laughs> they call me Yossi. I'm like, Ugh. You know, I didn't yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and I remember I give, I give a lot of credit to my wife. She said, if you're going to do this, get out of here. Yeah. Like, if you're really serious about seeing if this could be something that could really help people, even if they call you at four in the morning, get out of bed. You remember and the go. moment after you kind of like woke up from it and you're in your car and then like you're driving and there's probably no one around you. It's dark. There's a street light on. And you're like, oh, this is what my neighborhood looks like at four <laughs> o'clock or one o'clock in the morning. And then you, do you remember the moment where you're like, holy crap, I'm doing this? Yeah. I remember also it was Jaffa that I had to drive to. So you know, it's really dark there. The streets are very narrow. And then you then you arrive at this place and they're still partying. Right, like, it's just the food is done, but the fun alcohol that, is still flowing. Yeah, everything's flowing, and that, by the way, that over the years that became such a fun part because you know I always people would call me and say, "Can you recommend this hall?" I say, "I only know the back entrance. I don't go through in the in the front." But then when sometimes you'd have teenagers who were volunteers, and it turned into like wedding crashers with them. Right, <laughs> you know they would call me sometimes the younger people and say, "Is it okay if we eat a little bit of the food?" Because it was just. Great food, and they're out. And I say, please don't drink. Like, don't. You know, they would want to get in. They'd come in and get into the party. I don't care. They can do whatever they it's want. It's a great association for a volunteer that, like, volunteering is a party. It was a great volunteer. The biggest challenge in the volunteering was the time for some people. And the fact that sometimes you'd stay up, and then you'd call the caterer, and the caterer would say, you know, there's two pieces of schnitzel left. And, you know, in a kilo of rice, it doesn't really make sense for you to come out. Right. You're that first chain in that long, complex chain to actually solve the social issue that you want to solve. That first chain is so critical because it's so, I would imagine, it's so easy for a caterer to just dump the food. So he's looking, let's take the Israeli army, our number one donor of food. Okay, anyone who served in the army knows how much. And the minute I started like it, I started getting calls left and right from kids in the community who were in the army. Do you know what we're throwing away? My nephew, I remember, he was here in Machal from Toronto. And he calls me Uncle Joseph. They're very formal, the Canadians. Uncle Joseph, I threw away an entire lul, that means chicken coop, an entire chicken coop of chickens. What are you going to do about it? It was like a challenge. And so... It's like on a chalkboard for you, probably like nails on a chalkboard, like totally. killed you. It killed it. By the way, it kills me to this day. I fight it in my own home. I fight it everywhere. It doesn't... Right. The issue is much more known today. Food waste is something that people talk about. But everyone still does it. But I, I remember thinking to myself, the army, they'll for sure just, they have, they're the biggest logistics organization in the country. They'll just deliver the right. food to my warehouse. No, why? Because the head of logistics in the army said to me, we have other things to worry about. <laughs> you know, our trucks need to do their job as part of the Israeli army. We never got them either to deliver. and But that's been okay for us. It just means we have a very big fleet of trucks and spend a lot of money on gas and we have a lot of drivers. But you know what? The flip side of that is, and often in the charity world, this is looked at negatively, but I take great pride that we have 120 Israelis making a living. No one's getting rich off like it, but they're making a living that they themselves, because you can imagine me of all people not paying enough and then people having themselves to go to a soup kitchen or so. Perpetuating the problem. Perpetuating the fix. problem. And I think that's something that our donors 
they love that we take waste, you know, something that was going in the garbage. Okay? We take their money. We turn that into trucks, drivers, business, right? I'm a business for all intents and purposes. I take all that money. We spend it on logistics, on drivers, on pickers, on volunteer coordinators, on food raisers, as we call them. Those are the people who actually close deals with the people who have the food. So we take all, and, and, and here you have 120 Israeli families now, you know, surviving. And we turn that into four or five dollars worth of food for every dollar that we spend. So it's actually, it's a dream charity in that sense, because you get your charitable leverage and you also take care of the poor and you're helping the environment. There's a lot of win-wins. In a way that really just redistributes food. Yeah. Equitably. And it's food. I mean, if we go back to the beginning of the interview, we as a society need to produce extra food. We can't take a chance that, you know, suddenly there's a terrible fires in Russia and, you know, Russia has the biggest wheat crop in the world and half the wheat crop gets destroyed. We can't have, so we have to produce 10, 15%, 20, but we produce 50% more food in the world than we need. So when someone's starving in Africa, that's unacceptable. When someone has, is food insecure in Israel, the United States, that's ridiculous. Okay. Right. And that's what we're talking about here. Ridiculous. And let's take it a step further. In places like Israel, the U.S., Canada, not only should the, the poor be fed, they should be fed properly. One of the complaints always about the food banking movement was that people are being fed, they're being fed garbage. So one of the things in Leket, we do not deal in any garbage. Okay, we deal in fruits and vegetables, cooked meals. I don't even like to take bottled water. I say, that's silly. Why would I waste logistical capability on bottled water? People can turn on their tap. It's a lot cheaper, okay, etc. So I have nothing against, you know, I have nothing against a kid should get a Coca-Cola. But I'm not going to use donor funds. Or as I used to say, if Coca-Cola wants to send us Coke, they can deliver it directly to the charities. I'm not going to spend one penny. Don't think of that. I like a Coke once in a while also. But I don't think it's a good use of our donor funds. Yeah. I always think, right, about like whether it's philanthropy, foundations, organizations, about this like moment that never happens, that we all pray happens, kind of like Mashiach coming, right? Like <laughs> when the universe says to you, oh, by the way, the hunger level in Israel is 0% or everything's fine, right? And most charities, right, or organizations, particularly also Jewish organizations, are never going to tell you. <laughs> It's done. No, they say <laughs> the opposite. They say, yeah, oh, it's always getting worse. It's never getting better. Yeah. And, and now we're in a moment where that kind of like sunset moment that we all know will never happen, but we wake up and strive for every day. You know, that's even further away because of how COVID has totally reshaped and, and in many ways made even more dramatic the needs that, you know, pushed you to wake up at 4 a.m. in 2003. I want to hear about like, what you guys did during COVID and how you made it an opportunity like you did from that first night in 2003 at 4 a.m. Certainly our dream is, is that we can solve the, I don't even like to call it hunger because there's no hunger in Israel, but the food insecurity issue, of course, we'd like to solve. That's one of our goals as an organization. Will we then stop collecting food? No. Halavai, that we should be able to deliver it to, I don't know, Gaza, Halavai, we can put it on a boat. By the way, let me take you back. I had a farmer who told me how preposterous is this. In the early 80s, when Israel was poor, he used to put his tomato, extra tomatoes and ship them on a boat to Biafra, where there's a terrible war. 
Okay. He says, now we're a much wealthier country. And you tell me I need to keep the tomatoes here. That's, you know, that's what's crazy here. And so the dream of Lekka, and I think every organization, obviously we want the whole world to live in peace and have everyone to have enough to eat. But until that time comes, we'll do what we need to do here. And if that time comes here in Israel, we'll continue what we do and we'll ship things outside of Israel. Okay, now, COVID response in a couple of sentences. Decision number one had to do with our food rescue project, which at that time was sailing along, growing, rescuing around 10 thousand meals every single day that went from 10,000 meals in the in the middle of March 2020 to zero <laughs> within six weeks of that now you could say like it's a food rescue organization no food to rescue everyone I don't put everyone on vacation do something else uh, don't do anything we decided as an organization the right decision which was we don't have food to rescue we have 17 years of goodwill uh, we're well respected we think our supporters like us. We're going to announce that we're purchasing meals and we're going to be purchasing them primarily where we can from the businesses who normally give us food for free. Who are now probably doing no business. Hotels, corporate cafeterias. Wow. Event halls. Nothing. Right. Or next to nothing. But let me tell you, just, yeah. the, the other piece of COVID was the opposite, meaning our other major project in Laquette is the work we do with farmers collecting excess fruits and vegetables that aren't being marketed because the price is too low in the marketplace or because they're ugly fruits and vegetables or or they've been damaged by a hailstorm. And that's by far a much, much larger project than our meal rescue. By dint of the fact that hotels were closed, tourism was closed, corporate cafeterias were closed, farmers got stuck with huge amounts of crops that they had nothing to do with. So while our meal rescue went to almost zero, our fruit and vegetable rescue soared. Our original goal, just to put some numbers, for 2020 was 31 million pounds. We did 40 million pounds. And because that's continued and because we've made great relationships with farmers and they see our logistical capabilities, this year our goal is 50 million pounds. So we are killing it in that. And it's really beautiful, I think, in a time where a lot of charities did have to retrench, often because of financial reasons, some because of just what they do was impossible. I feel so lucky and blessed that our donors did come forward and allow us to expand. And I hope they'll continue to do that because we still see huge amounts of food waste, even though we feel like we've changed the whole perception in this country. We're not even close to what's possible. So we're still going to push to grow. So take me, like, imagine, so you're about to speak at, a, you know, Young Israel of Westchester, one of your biggest donors' houses for a parlor meeting, and you're thinking back on this past year, which both professionally, personally, you know, social impact-wise was the challenge of our lifetime. And then you're th there on the other side. What's going through your head? So it's interesting you ask because I've been telling people I'm never doing that ever again <laughs> because Zoom is the greatest yeah. invention ever. <laughs> But I will, of course, you know, and, and for me, what's going to be in my head is that what was most beautiful was that if there was ever a time where that partnership could have disappeared very reasonably, it, it could have been the last year. Why? You said Westchester. Like, where could have been the most natural place for us? Oh, my God, that was the first place. Patient Zero was in New Rochelle. I know him. What could have been a more like the needs the needs are always large in the local communities, and yet people 
find a way to still give to Israel, right? And yet, and here was the time. This was that moment. I'm not talking about uh, the Pew study and American Jews are disconnected. None of that. I'm talking about people are connected to the state of Israel. This was, this was the moment where the local needs were staggering and people could have so reasonably said, you know, we've got to really focus on our local communities now. Israel is strong. Israel will figure it out. And you know what happened? The opposite. Okay. People dug deeper and they gave more in their local communities and they gave more. And that's what I, you know what, that's the first thing I would want to say to people is just thank you for doing even more at a time where we were scared you were going to do even less. And, you know, that would be my message. And look what it enables us to do. And we're a changed organization. Leckett is not going back ever, I don't think, to being what we expected to be in 2020. Now, our budget, our original budget for 2020 was 50 million shekels, okay? And even that we thought, and, and money's not the key to Leckett. It's what we produce with that money. But at the end of the day, we need the money to produce what we do. Now we're a much bigger organization. Uh, you know, we hope it'll continue, but we've, we're on that path now. And it's, it's very, very hard to go back because also that's what our recipients expect from us. So we've now created a, a new challenge for ourselves, which is COVID created growth. And now we have to stick with that growth. So I thank the people very much overseas for enabling us to do that. And hopefully they'll stick with us with the journey. Do you have a line from like Torah, Mishnah that kind of pushes you to continue your work? Well, there's one commandment in the Torah which has been forgotten over the last few decades. It's called Baal Tashchit, do not waste. I have many other things in my head, but for me, that's the driving force. It's not about, even though it's about feeding the poor, and no one would support Leket if we just took the food, I don't know, delivered it in Tehertzaliya uh, Pituach, okay? We have to use that food to feed the poor. But what drives me and what drove the organization over the years is actually the commandment of Baal Tashchit, do not waste. Because helping the poor has, was never forgotten. But not wasting has disappeared from our lexicon. Okay? We happen to be focused on food. But pick your topic. We're just too rich. I'm talking about the world. We're too rich. Everything comes too easy. And, um, you know, I'm part of this greater movement, I think, which says slow down. And no one needs... 200, I'll probably get myself in trouble now, 200 pairs of shoes, and no one needs to have four potatoes worth of french fries on their plate. And that's what, that's really what drives me. And that's it's always, you know, if I get tired or if I feel weak or if I talk to our team, just remember the back of the head. And now, especially, I think, in today's day and age where, where the environmental movement, I'm part of that movement which says, you know, we have limited resources and we have to, you know, who are we? Or, right. you know, and I look, I look at what goes on, I just see the word Shanda, you know that Yiddish word? An embarrassment. I just feel it every day. I see it every day. And it's it's just unacceptable. And that's what pushes me. Amazing. So you came as a Joseph and you're leaving as a Yossi. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting with us and teaching us about the incredible work that your organization and your life's mission has really perpetuated during this really transformative time. I think it's very fair to say that you not only met the challenge, you exceeded it. Thank you so much for what you do. And uh, I have that image of you in the car at 3 a.m. And <laughs> next time I'm in the car at 3 a.m., I'll think to myself, wow, I am not doing what that guy did. I mean, <laughs> what a thing to strive for. Thank you so much. Thank you for this great opportunity. It was really interesting talking to you today.
I left Joseph's home thinking about how he sleeps at night, knowing that someone with his personality probably can't turn off their mind and pause. And then I thought about how probably, before he goes to sleep, before he puts his head on the pillow, he thinks about all the food that's going to waste. In his home, in Renana, in Israel, and in the world. How can he sleep? Maybe a Leket driver will call out sick and they'll need Joseph. He's ready. You can tell. He's ready for the call and to do what must be done. How can he even rest? But he's human. He must. There's an incredible energy to Joseph Gittler. I admire it. I admire people who try to take on challenges so much bigger than themselves in their own worlds. Will he feed every child in Israel through Leket's work? Probably not. But maybe that's why he's so restless. Maybe that's why he's so focused. A man in pursuit of an impossible goal. Maybe it's possible. What do I know? And if it is, I'm sure of one thing. Joseph Gittler will find a way. He has no other choice. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.